we have a duty ourselves as as liberal states and citizens within liberal states to design frameworks and institutions that will result in the sorts of AI that we're comfortable with. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, a podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of America Explained. I'm your host Andy Gothop, bringing you international perspectives on the foreign policy and politics of the United States and related international issues. My guest today is the author of many books about modern conflict and strategy, and particularly its psychological dimensions. He's interested in what makes human beings tick and how that affects the way that they fight one another. In his most recent work, he's taken the next logical step and asked the same question about artificial intelligence. If warfare has always been a struggle between competing human wills, what does it mean both practically and ethically if at least part of the business of warfare passes out of the hands of humans and into the hands of intelligent machines. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Kenneth Payne to discuss his new book, I Warbot, which has been listed as one of the best books of 2021 by The Economist and praised in many other outlets as well. Welcome to the show, Kenneth, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Andy. Uh, Hi, everybody, and thanks for having me. So I think a logical jumping off point is to talk about the way that we commonly encounter the idea of artificial intelligence in today's culture and what's misleading about these portrayals. So I think there's two kind of broad ways that AI gets talked about in public consciousness. The first, which we could call the Hollywood view, is captured in the movie Terminator. So according to this view, what we have to fear from AI is that super intelligent, super strong, super capable robots are going to become able to do everything that a human does and much more besides and become a kind of super soldier that could threaten humanity. The second view, which we might call the Silicon Valley view, is encapsulated in books like Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom and Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark. And it's also been voiced by people like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk. According to this view, what we most have to fear from AI is that it will become so smart, so kind of so capable as a strategic actor that it will outgrow the need for humans entirely and kind of wrest control of the planet from us and possibly push us into extinction. I thought it'd be good if you could begin by telling us what, in your view, these views get wrong and how you would like us to think about the dangers of artificial intelligence instead. Mm, So... I think there's a there's a third view as well, which uh, you often find from people who know a bit about AI, who are active researchers in it or commentators about it, uh, which is that AI is uh, limited um, along many dimensions, um, useful certainly as a tool, um, but rather closer to an abacus or a calculator than it is to that Arnie vision of, of Terminator. And there's a degree of uh, insider cynicism or scepticism that's used to weigh against that very um, technophile uh, hyperbole um, that you you mentioned there in your introduction. So there's at least three views. Um, Where do I sit on that spectrum? Probably closer to that third view, which is that AI, as we understand it today, is far more limited and very different from human intelligence in a number of respects. But in those narrow domains uh, in which it does have utility, it can still produce super strong results, um, you know, uh, capable of carrying out uh, feats of calculation far beyond uh, what humans can. It's very good 
at remembering things. It's very good at finding patterns in huge data sets. Uh, it's very good at performing uh, calculations at great speed. Uh, and so for, for a, a certain type of task, it's super intelligent, but overall, it's it's not at the races when it comes uh, to a comparison um, with human intelligence. I think that's probably the view that that I would subscribe to. But of course, just because that's what we understand uh, of AI today, uh, that doesn't mean that that's always going to be the case. Yeah. And so Nick Bostrom has this uh, parable of the paperclip that he talks about mm-hmm. where he. So the idea here is that. AI may become extremely effective in certain domains and certain types of logic, mm-hmm. but fundamentally lacks kind of the, the broader contextual understanding to understand and to implement what we ask it to do. So in his, you know, I think fairly ludicrous example, he gives an example where an AI machine is asked to produce a certain number of paperclips. So it kind of gathers resources and and builds a factory and starts outputting paperclips. But then because it it doesn't know how to weigh this goal against other goals that that humans would find kind of implicit and obvious, it instead begins consuming all the resources on Earth in order to make itself as good as possible at calculating how many paperclips it's produced. So it can tell that it has done its task as well as could possibly be expected of it. Now, I think this is, you know, obviously kind of a a, a ludicrous example, but it seems to illustrate the idea that by AI becoming very competent in certain domains, but then not competent in other domains, it poses kind of particular risks. And does that have any applicability to the topic of AI and warfare? Yeah, I think it certainly captures something about those limitations on modern AI that I was uh, just alluding to. Um, that paperclip example has become quite famous. I mean, it's it's a sort of a sort of updated version, I guess, of um, of the Sorcerer's Apprentice. You remember Mickey in the film where he <laughs> right, yeah. he instructs the brooms to do something, and they go off and do something radically different, and he and he can't stop them from doing it. And even when you chop the broom in two, the two halves go off and do something. So that captures it, that, and the paperclips capture the idea of AI's more limited s- intelligence. Uh, limited common sense and limited grasp of human type meaning and also the dangers of an AI that does things that are unexpected or unanticipated by us. So even a a relatively basic AI that's just tasked with counting 100 paperclips out in that thought experiment um, poses dangers to humanity. And I think that's an insightful thing when it regardless of what you think about Bostrom's uh, argument about super intelligent AI emerging from from the current paradigm. I still think this is a useful story, a useful fable to think about. It's a little bit like King Midas as well, where everything he touched turns to God. Un, unanticipated consequences of your of your um, giving instructions uh, to something or wishing for something to happen. So it's useful. And I think it captures the limited sense of AI. And I would say that even without any radical new developments in AI, um, what we have today has the potential to have a dramatic impact on warfare. Uh, And one aspect of that, uh, the potential dangers of the AI that we have today, not grasping our, our wishes, our desires for what we want it to do. 
Yeah, so so to dive into the topic of war bots, which is what your book is about. So so your book very focuses very closely on war and 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 as you call them, war bots, machines which will exhibit some form of intelligence and take part in human conflict. And so I think one of the most insightful ways to to get at this topic, and it's it's a way that you take in your book, is to think about the difference between the character of conflict and the nature of conflict. So there's this long running debate in the history of thinking about warfare about the difference between the character character and the nature of conflict. And the idea here is basically that throughout human history, the fundamental nature of conflict as a clash of human wills has stayed the same. But the character in terms of the technology and the politics of the era and things like this have, have changed over time. But you argue that with the entrance of war bots into human history, something fundamental in the nature of conflict has changed as well. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what that is and, and why it matters for thinking about AI and warfare. Yeah, um, I think that's one of the, the central points of the book. Um, firstly, uh, warbot, the term warbot, um, I think it's in some respects unfortunate because it concentrates the mind on the physical aspect. You, you, you think of an uh, uninhabited aircraft uh, or some other type of physical platform. Um, and I actually chose warbot because it, it, you know, it sounds like robot and it allowed me to, to, to have some fun <laughs> with Isaac Asimov's uh, rules for, for robots. Uh, in his uh, famous book uh, I Robot, so that's the that's the riff off the title. But but one downside of that, as I say, is it concentrates on the platform rather than what's really important, which is AI's quality as a decision-making tool, something that's capable of responding to its environment uh, in sometimes novel uh, and useful for the people who who set up the AI uh, useful ways. Um, and I do think that there is something there. Uh, about this nature and character split. That's a Clausewitzian distinction, isn't it? it where, you, where you talk about the nature of warfare as being something enduring and permanent and the character as being something that's culturally informed and changing through time and across space. And so if you think about what's in the nature of warfare, well, Clausewitz um, gave us some hints there. He said it was social, it was violent. That was the, the, the distinguishing feature of, of warfare. It was actually either actually violent or involved the threat of violence. Uh, and that violence was... Uh, in the service of of the politics of the social groups um, that were carrying it out. And he said it was a, an uncertain affair. There's a lot going on, huge amounts of variables interacting. Um, friction uh, means that you can't get a, a, a or the fog of war means you can't get a full grasp of, of, of what's going on. And for humans, uh, at least, it involves some uh, element of emotionality. It's, uh, um, you know, it involves emotions like anger, fear and so on. So he said that, that that's what constituted the nature of war but there was something else as well and it's this that i think potentially changes uh, it, it's the it's the the quality of the decision making that's involved um that's changing for the for the very first time in in human history uh, and prehistory um some of the decisions about violence are going to be taken by intelligences that are not human um and that don't uh, have some of those human characteristics that i've been so interested in uh, in my career. So um, some of those, those those cognitive shortcuts that we use to make our decisions, uh, some of those uh, emotionally informed uh, aspects of our decision making. Clausius talked about that as well. He, he, he described his ideal commander as possessing what he, he called genius. And what he meant by that pretty much was the ability to make decisions rather than be paralyzed by indecision, the ability to make decisions and appropriate decisions, even though you didn't have complete information, even though there was a high degree of 
uncertainty going on and even though you were experiencing a, a rich panoply of emotions the genius commander could do could do all that well and it and it's that uh that change between the genius commander and the ai decision maker that i was trying to get at with this uh, this borrowing from Clausewitz of that idea about the nature and character of conflict You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. Yeah, and I think that, so that brings us to another distinction that's often used when we talk about warfare, which is that between strategy and tactics. So, and, and, and you talk in your book about the ways in which AI might affect strategy and it might affect tactics or, or rather to put it another way, the role that artificial intel- artificial intelligent actors may take at these different levels of warfare. Could you tell us a little bit about that, that strategy tactics distinction and why you think that's useful for thinking about the impact that AI will have on the future of conflict? Sure. I, I mean, I think it's a really important distinction, but of course, there's some degree of subjectivity and crossover between those those two ta- uh, those, the, those two categories tactics and strategies subject of endless debate at, at, at war colleges you know where does strategy ends and tactics start um, but for me the AI that we have today uh, relatively limited in some respects and relatively superhuman uh, in in other respects is particularly suited to tactics uh, and by tactics I mean the business of, of of war that's closest to battle, that involves uh, manoeuvring physical forces for advantage on a battlefield and directing firepower accurately. And I think today's AI is, is going to be good at that. L- less good at strategy, which is the, the higher level business of war. Um, the sorts of questions that, uh, that are involved in strategy are things like, um, well, why are we fighting? What does the enemy want? How hard Will they fight to achieve what they want? Those sorts of questions are uh, somewhat harder to come at um, with modern AI than is, for example, uh, a dogfight involving an uninhabited uh, fighter aircraft. So I think it's a it's a useful distinction. Uh, um, and I used it, as you say in the book, as the as the basis of unpicking some of those things that that AI will be useful for. And actually, there's a lot that can already be said about the business of tactics um and uh, ai techniques because we're starting to see some of that roll out uh, in conflicts today and, and into the structure of armed forces today as well there's less um about uh how ai can contribute to strategy uh, and you have to think a little bit more in a little bit more creative fashion about how ai might be applied to to questions of strategy so could could you maybe speak uh, concretely and give us a few examples of the way that that ai is already or may over kind of a 10, 20 year time horizon influence tactics. And, and perhaps, of course, we, we, we haven't yet mentioned the the war in Ukraine, which, which is ha- which is happening right now. And actually, I think when we planned this episode that the war hadn't even begun, but but mm. now it has. And um, I wondered if 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 there's anything that we're witnessing in the war in Ukraine that you think serves as kind of a, a an interesting teachable moment about this topic and the role that AI does or does not play currently in conflict. I think it's it's really interesting the war in Ukraine in a number of respects. Um, for one thing, it looks a little bit like a traditional 
war after decades of insurgency this is more high intensity mm. war in it and it has elements of that uh, sort of industrial war fighting you know, there's there's large amounts of of, of armor uh, infantry artillery um uh, moving around a, a, a big battlefield and so there's echoes of earlier more traditional warfare at the same time some commentators have been somewhat surprised by the absence of more uh or the, the visible absence of more high-end uh, aspects of warfare why hasn't there been a huge cyber attack uh for example um and we're also uh, at the start of a period of uninhabited uh autonomous platforms so whilst there's drone uh, um, activity going on in the Ukraine. These are remotely controlled drones rather than autonomously flying drones. So uh, we're on the cusp, but um, there's an awful lot that that isn't mature and that, that hasn't matured and that isn't happening uh, yet in battle. So Ukraine is very interesting. But just to pull back a little bit from from Ukraine, there's an awful lot in tactics uh, and in military activity that AI will do that isn't at the sharp end of battle that doesn't involve flying uninhabited platforms. There's an awful lot of stuff that AI is useful for, for example, in the civilian world that has military applications. So this, this could be really banal things like sourcing the mail or, or going through your, your personnel records or, or booking people's medical appointments. Uh, and at first blush, you think, well, that's not really very sexy and it's not really got much to do with warfare. But if it improves the efficiency of your armed forces, then it improves their ability to fight and so increases military power. So I think there's a lot of stuff that's perhaps unglamorous, but that is going to be useful for militaries and that will involve a direct readover from things that are going on in the private sector. When it comes to, to battle and tactics, uh, as I say, I think we're uh, starting to see some things coming through with a lot more to come over the course of the next few years. So even though it's not visible in Ukraine, AI is there in battle and it is making a significant difference. It's doing things uh, like um, sorting through mountains of intelligence. Uh, machine learning algorithms have been used uh, for years to sift through vast amounts of electronic uh, information and find useful nuggets. Uh, and that's surely happening in the conflict in Ukraine that we wouldn't hear much about it and see much of it. Um, it's doing things like uh, facial recognition um which is uh ai powered um and actually as a, as a little digression w when something like siri has become commonplace i think there's a tendency for us to to not see it as somehow magical and start to normalize and perhaps not even see it as ai there's a bigger question there of what is ai and and what is machine learning um and i think facial recognition is a, is, a, is a good example of that it's it's um it's something that's that's cutting edge but or has been cutting edge but is rapidly becoming prosaic the ability to point a camera at something and have it recognize your face it's how you unlock your iphone now 10 years ago that would have seemed a magical technology but anyway that's being used in battle in ukraine to identify soldiers prisoners of war uh, and apparently uh then to phone up their relatives and tell them you've taken them prisoner or they've been killed in combat for propagandistic purposes um, AI is being used more broadly for propagandistic purposes for the creation of fake uh, content online, uh, including deep fake videos, but also the generation of, of thousands of bots. We're starting to see those sorts of changes. But the next step in changes, I think, is going to be even more dramatic, and that's going to involve uninhabited platforms uh, and um, uh, Western military forces and China uh, are already experimenting with this. The most, um, I guess, the most distinctive change is this idea of swarming 
warfare where you use thousands of autonomous uh, platforms together uh, and that I think is an example uh, where you will have a qualitative change in military tactics. You also touched on something really interesting there which is that this crossover between civilian and military applications of, of this technology and the two-way street that exists between those things things and i think that it, it's really interesting to think about the relationship between this technology and the values of the society that develops it and this is kind of a two-way street because we can see that societies with particular values are likely to develop particular types of war bots but then war bots you know like other forms of military technology also alter society in turn as well mm. and it's kind of a particularly interesting relationship because there's a real tendency for scientific and, and also social technologies that are developed for external conflicts to eventually find their way home as well and be used as tools of repression or, or other utilities in civilian society. You know, the, the country that is currently at the forefront of warbot development seems to be the United States, which has, you know, its own particular traditions of individual liberty, but also traditions of persecuting particular groups of citizens as well. And, and other countries like China and Israel are also very interested in this technology. And the warbots that they develop will likely reflect their own values. I, I wondered if you think that it's right to worry about the blurring of the line between war and domestic repression as this technology matures, not not just or even primarily in the West, but also in other societies as well. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, Andy. And I think there's, you know, there's often a danger of what scholars call technological determinism, which is you get caught up in the sexy new technology uh, and you see it as it's almost like it emerges from the blue. It's your independent variable and it, it produces changes downstream changes on society but the real world's more complex than that as you say you know uh, technologies are cultural artifacts they emerge from particular societies in particular times and ai is no exception to that so the flavor of ai that is developed in in israel is going to look different from the ai that's developed uh, in china uh, and the us and the netherlands uh, for example, where you are. Um, and I think it's important to keep uh, to keep that in mind, that sort of dynamic symbiotic relationship. I'm reminded of, you know, Charles Tilley's uh, famous uh, line, war made the state and the state made war. And, and I think that's a really, you know, that's a really good up sum of the relationship between societies and warfare. And into that mix, I'd shoehorn technology, you know, war, war made the state make technology and the technologically enabled state made war and, and and in ai and i tell this story a little bit in the book that relationship between defense national security and scientific development and wider society is is particularly pronounced i mean ai has a long history of close relationship to the national security establishment because it was seen as being useful for things that militaries were interested in, finding targets, breaking codes, controlling autonomous platforms, and so on. So, um, it, it, it's a it's a it's a deeply interconnected social artifact. Um, what does that mean um, today? I've just um, just sent back the proofs of an article I've done with Theo Farrell, who's a, um, a prominent scholar of strategic culture, and we've written a piece on strategic culture and AI, um, and that that draws out some of these ideas uh, and I think the first thing I'd say there is it, it's quite early days to talk about distinctive national cultures of AI because for many countries 
either they don't do very much indigenous AI development or there's not been a long period of time in which AI has played a part in their society. So it's hard to reach definitive conclusions beyond uh, the one that you know, you'd expect a relationship between a society's values and cultures and the sorts of AI it develops and instrumentalizes or imports. Um, but you can start to draw some tentative conclusions. And the obvious one is, is the contrast between the US and China, as you say, China, an authoritarian state with a large scale surveillance apparatus, uh, high technology, big research sector. You can see AI being used is being used um, as a tool for surveillance uh, and social control, whether that's facial recognition or tracing people's online activities and so on. Uh, and um, you might expect a very different use uh, of AI in the US and in Europe. But I would, uh, you know, I'd uh, be a little bit, oh, I am a little bit uneasy about the effect of these technologies on democratic societies. And I think these societies are going to face some interesting choices and have to come to some form of institutional arrangement about what is permissible and what's not permissible with these sorts of tools. That's true for other areas of scientific endeavor, biotechnology in particular, but it's also true for AI. It's up to us as societies, Western societies, to decide what arrangements with AI we're going to have um, in the future. Uh, these things are, these matters are, are largely unsettled, they're controversial, um, but I still suspect that the the outcome that emerges, the process that goes through and the outcome that emerges will look qualitatively different in the Netherlands from how it looks in China. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. it's really interesting to think about the ways that even technologies that aren't necessarily on the face of it malignant could just really transform society so one example that i think about is that so there's been you know there's been buzz around this idea that one day facial recognition technology you know perhaps combined with other forms of ai could be able to tell someone's emotions very closely very clearly and to whether they're lying or not so basically to be able to kind of lay bare their innermost emotional states to the outside world. Now, from, from what I understand, that there's this technology is kind of overhyped and, and really it doesn't seem to be anywhere near possible with, with current capabilities. But I just think sometimes about how much that would just completely transform our society if we all could just by pointing our iPhone at someone be able to tell if they were lying or not or what their emotional state was. And, you know, that could be used to really, really pernicious effects within authoritarian systems. You know, you can imagine like some kind of scene out of 1984 where everybody is made to sit down and watch a speech by the great leader. And then technology can be used to tell if people are made angry by it, right? Or if they disagree with it. But then also just, it would completely upend democratic uh, societies as well. Because if if you could just tell when a politician was lying, that would completely transform politics. So, you know, it's really... Uh, it's really amazing to to think about, you know, the unintended consequences that this technology can yeah, have, yeah. Uh, as well as just whether it's used malignantly or not. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I'm I, I am profoundly skeptical that an AI lie detector will be much better than a human lie detector, which is also not not particularly good. I mean, they go about it in very different ways. Like so, the AI in the example that you use is looking for, I guess, micro expressions that that, that might give mm. the game away, uh, and cataloging that against a huge database of of uh, uh, on which it's trained where people have either been lying or not lying and, and, and drawing its own conclusions and that's not really how humans do it um you know humans are partially looking at, at facial expressions for a tell although probably more often than not it's misleading them but but humans are assessing the context of the other person and what they know about them and performing an imaginative empathic act of thinking themselves into the other person's perspective and trying to reach some conclusions on the basis of that and machines aren't they're pattern recognizing uh and at the moment they're they're not um they're not really at the races and i suspect that will that will remain the case for a very long period of time i think some other method of, of lie detecting will have to be found but for, i think facial recognition is a big challenge for liberal societies that value privacy um and um value individual rights versus uh um collective rights but as part of a a, a bigger suite that a suite of technologies that squeeze the scope for privacy um you know an englishman's home is his castle and once you close the door you're you're in there and the state can can shove off it's got limited rights to know things about you but but the fact is you know the state will be uh, is and will increasingly be able to draw conclusions uh, about your private life you you might say that in some respects that could be a force for good if you think about nudge theory the more the state knows the more it can uh, paternalistically tailor solutions that will nudge you along the path uh, um that, that is uh, that is good for you in inverted commas but i'm a little bit more cynical and concerned about that and i think uh, liberal societies need to have strong and robust and enforceable restrictions on what the state has a right to know about you and can know about you and also what it does with data that it gathers about you after it's ceased using it yeah it's it's kind of interesting that so i read a paper by nick bostrom i think it came out maybe a year or so ago in which he basically extrapolates from his idea of superintelligence and combines this with fears about the development of weapons of mass destruction kind of becoming much easier and, and much more um, just something that people can do much more easily, you know, assisted by artificial intelligence. And the, the solution he arrives at to this is that basically it will become necessary for mankind to adopt totalitarianism as a form of government in order to prevent dangerous technological development. And, you know, I, I just think that it's um, it's a particular pathway that, you know, again, I think Bostrom is prone to exaggeration and kind of drawing trends much farther than, than they're actually going to ever reach in real life. But again, it kind of draws our attention to that they're useful thought experiments, I think, for thinking about tendencies in our system of government and where technology will will push them. And I guess so. Th this kind of links to the, the last thing that I, I wanted to ask you about, which is the potential for the kind of regulation or prohibition of this kind of technology. This is kind of slightly related to Bostrom's argument, but I'm thinking now about, well, if this technology has the potential to be so dangerous and eventually bring 
into existence the potential for a new form of totalitarianism, which is potentially much more dangerous and, and much more harder to break out of than previous forms. You know, what what other capacities or the possibilities for international coordination to try to regulate or prohibit the development of, of this technology? And even, you know, well, within the, the scope of the history of warfare, particularly in the modern era, we've seen this pattern several times where a new particularly destructive technology emerges, be it chemical weapons or nuclear weapons or something else, and eventually becomes a subject to some sort of international control. And But you argue that there's a number of things which makes the prospect of regulating or prohibiting warbots particularly unlikely. One of those things maybe is also this, this dual usage that artificial intelligence has for both domestic and international purposes. It seems to mean that governments might be pursuing this technology for domestic purposes and then it has spin-offs for warfare which seems to make its regulation even more difficult so i just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your thinking about the prospect of regulating this type of technology in the future yeah i i haven't read that boston piece but it does have a certain uh, doom laden uh, <laughs> to, to, to thinking about ai so hang on he's saying that you know you'll only regulate it via effectively via some sort of totalitarian government is that is that the conclusion yes that that's the conclusion but he's he's specifically talking about wmd development so he says yeah you know so he says that basically in order to stop artificial intelligence leading to the development of wmd that will destroy mankind we need totalitarianism well so echoes there of um Morgenthau's uh, late life call for world government uh, in order to deal with the scourge of nuclear weapons and the yeah, exactly. nuclear meltdown. It's interesting that that puts Boston at the opposite end of the spectrum to uh, the, the the sort of tech bro libertarian at the other end of the spectrum who want to deregulate everything and take it uh, beyond all control. And we're having this conversation in the week that Elon Musk wanted to to buy Twitter, um, partially motivated by the desire to. To, to do that to free to free society <laughs> control over over um, uh, IT systems. Um, so uh, my my view is that uh, I'm worried about the use of AI in national security, and I think there are some uh, um, dangers in the road ahead. Um, but I think its use is inevitable because it confers or has the potential to confer. A tremendous martial advantage for states that can harness it and instrumentalize it effectively. Uh, and then, um, moreover, that it's going to be really challenging to regulate it. Uh, and I don't think regulation will happen. You know, there are ongoing efforts um, at the UN talking about killer robots and so forth, intergovernment dialogue, campaign groups, uh, like the campaign against killer robots. So there's much earnest discussion of what might be done. But I'm skeptical that international regulation can be done for a number of reasons, one of which you've identified, um, you know, dual use technologies, the same the same algorithm that can find a tumour on a mammogram, can find a tank in a in a forest. Um, so uh, that's one reason. And another reason is just defining what we mean by AI in the first place. As I mentioned earlier in the conversation, you know, we very quickly discount AI systems like the facial recognition that unlocked your iPhone because they just become normal and banal and part of our everyday life. And AI seems to refer uh, to something futuristic and far off. So what actually is AI is your second set of problems. Third problem, I've already identified this this security dilemma, as IR scholars would call it, um, where you're frightened about what, what China may be able to do with AI. So you double down your efforts to 
develop AI uh, yourself. So I think for those reasons and others, international um, regulation agreement is going to be quite hard. Um, Against that, I think uh, a number of things. I, th I think we do have an, an existing framework of international humanitarian law, and, I, and I, I'm inclined to see it as fit for purpose for, for the, the near future, at least, for regulating uh, the use of um, AI systems in combat. Um, you can identify um, responsibility for um, lethal autonomous weapons in the same way that, that we're working towards identifying responsibility for uh, autonomous cars when they crash or autonomous surgeons when they mess up in, in, in performing surgery. So it can be done uh, under existing ideas and norms and laws that are agreed between states. Uh, but then I think also there's a need for us to say, well, whatever happens on the international stage, and whatever agreements are reached with culturally dissimilar societies who have their own agendas, we have a duty ourselves as as liberal states and citizens within liberal states to design frameworks and institutions that will result in the sorts of AI that we're comfortable with. Um, we don't have to be the passive recipients of technological determinism. This, the, the technologies that we use are a reflection of what we want them to be to a certain extent. Obviously, you don't want to put yourself at uh, profound military disadvantage against states that are, are more cavalier or more forward leaning in their adoption of AI systems. But there's still plenty of scope for us to define institutional arrangements that will allow us to compete effectively. And we've been doing that for years. If you think about the legal frameworks that govern uh, the acquisition and processing of intelligence information by the NSA or GCHQ. Now, sure, technology changes the way in which those intelligence organizations go about their business. It creates scope for them to do more things and institutional frameworks and laws have to catch up with that. And, and in some respects, I think they need to catch up with it in the UK and the US. Um, but there is, uh, there is no um, inherent impediment to them doing that. It's about creating the right forms of oversight uh, and legal arrangements that we as a society are comfortable with. All right. Well, Kenneth, thanks so much for joining us to talk about these issues. I really appreciated it. And it's been a really great episode. And yeah, thanks very much. Cheers. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.